0: What did God mean when He made woman to be the helper for man? Does that mean God made woman to be men's cleaning ladies? And what is the genuine scriptural understanding of man and woman? Join us today as we explore these questions and more with Dr. Nina Harriman, the Associate Professor of Sacred Scripture at St. Patrick's Seminary University. I'm Father Dave Pavanca, and I'm President of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Please stay with us. Franciscan University presents. I'm your host, Father Dave Pivanka, and I'm president of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Today, we're discussing the genuine scriptural understanding of man and woman. I'm joined by our regular panelists, Dr. Regis Martin, professor of systematic theology here at Franciscan University, and Dr. Scott Hahn, the Father Michael Scanlon, professor of biblical theology and the new evangelization. I am pleased to welcome our guest, Dr. Nina Harriman, an associate professor and department chair of sacred scripture at St. Patrick's Seminary at the University of Menlo Park. California. She contributes to Catholic media in her home country of Germany and is also the author of the book that we're going to be talking about today, A Thirst for the Spirit uh, in a time for us to be able to discuss what in fact it is to be a man or a woman. So that seems like a great starting question, right?
1: Yes.
0: Does it matter? I mean, of we, course live wor- <laughs> we live in a world that says it doesn't matter. And uh, that's
1: exactly why it matters. That's right? Fantastic. That's uh, fantastic. It is, you know, it, it seems to be particularly in the present moment of the church, of the world, the church is the last man, quote unquote, standing, right. who stands yeah. up for the created and matterful difference between man and woman. It says in Genesis one twenty-seven, God created man in His image, in His image and likeness He created Him, man and woman He created Him. And so, it seems simply from an exegetical standpoint, it seems quite obvious that it's the complementarity between man and woman that in their complementarity reflect the image of God. And so a topic and that...
0: You express that quite beautifully, that it actually helps us have a fuller picture, that when we look at man and woman, it helps us understand the Trinity more.
1: Yeah. yeah. That is actually an idea that... I'd, well, so I'll tell you a little bit of how it, I came across this. I was doing, studying or working on the Song of Songs for my doctorate and trying to figure out how the woman is described in the Song of Songs, it just struck me that again and again, the vocabulary that was used to describe the woman was elsewhere in Scripture used to speak about God. There's a very powerful one where in Song chapter 4, verse 12, it says, you are a garden close and then it continues, you're a spring of living water. And of mm-hmm. course, everybody knows that famous quote from Jeremiah 2.13, you have abandoned me, you've dug yourself cisterns, um, you have abandoned me, the spring of living water, for cisterns that cannot hold water, right? So then I started tracing this metaphor of living water and realized it is really exclusively used as a metaphor for God, our source of true life. Particularly, I mean, there's passages where you have, of course, living water coming from a well in the book of Genesis, but even that is symbolic. But in the Song of Songs, it says, she's that spring of living water. It comes down from Lebanon and Lebanon is the shepherd for the temple. So, somehow God is the source of that water, but He communicates it to her. And it just hit me like, that's exactly what the church is. But it's not only the church, that's who Mary is. In her being. And then I came across, someone asked me randomly, Nina, did you ever hear this theory that the term that is used for helper in Genesis 2:18 is elsewhere only used for God? And I'd heard this from evangelicals, but I was a bit skeptical <laughs> because I hadn't heard it anywhere else. And then I came across an article from one of our Rolls Roy, Royces. So, I studied exegesis in Rome at the Biblicum and the Royce Royce in historical critical scholarship is Father Jean-Louis Scar. Oh, yeah. So, he had an article on that particular term that is used in Genesis 2:18 to describe woman as a helper and what this could possibly mean. And so, when I found out that he confirmed that this term is exclusively used elsewhere in the Scriptures to designate God who comes to the help of man And then it's used for woman, God saying, I will, I will give him a helper. I realized, okay, this term helper (laughs) means so much more than, I don't know in English, but in German, we use that in order not to say cleaning woman. Nowadays, we say helper. Somehow there's a kinship between why God has created woman and the way he comes to help man. And if you think who in the Trinity is, the helper. I mean, one thinks of the Holy Spirit, right? And then I ran into Dr. Scott Hahn (laughs) and asked him if he knew more about this, because then eventually before we met, of course, I came across your older brother in the faith, um, St. Maximilian Mm Kolbe, speaking about Mary being the quasi incarnation of the Holy Spirit. And then I was like, okay, there's something in scriptures that I'm not just reading into it, there is some it's deep, deep there. truth. Mm-hmm. Yes.
2: Could, could we maybe back up please, please. a little bit? Because I mean, the discourse has already been cast at a pretty high level, right. I, I think, and I think a number of people might say uh, this is all well and good, but it sounds impossibly esoteric. I mean, for you, it's plain as a potato. But look <laughs> yeah. at the cover of uh, your your book. The title it invites confusion, because. On the one hand, most people don't know that they are really a thirst uh, for the Holy Spirit, for springs of living water. They don't have a clue that this is why they were created, so that they might achieve communion with God. So, at the level of grace, people are really sort of innocent of what it is you imply. But even at the level of nature, there's confusion. Yes. If, if, if men and women are, are the recipients of this, this living spring of water, then what exactly is a man? what exactly is a woman because we don't know that anymore <laughs> yes. there, there's a great deal of babble uh, surrounding yes. those concepts i mean we, we think you know in our postmodern stupidity that these are social constructs so how do you disabuse people of, of those uh, those mythologies and then get down to the really hard uh, and heady stuff about yeah. you know you were made for god
1: yeah so maybe I I do need to add something very important. I'm not implying that women have in any sense more Holy Spirit than men. That would be ridiculous because we all have been baptized to be temples of the living God and He dwells in us if we're in a state of grace. The Holy Spirit is in us. But what uh, struck me working on this was, of course, working on women. I was also working on men and the relationship between the different women in the Old Testament and the different men. And it I mean, the the key really to understanding all this is Ephesians where Christ is depicted as the bridegroom of His church. So, already the New Testament sets us up for seeing in Jesus Christ, the new Adam and the church being described as the new Eve. Yeah. Now, if there is a complementarity between Christ and the new Eve, who at the source is Mary, then I think we do get a key for the, for understanding in a deeper way what was the relationship between the old Adam and the old Eve, and what um, what Saint Maximilian Kolbe kind of points us to is this idea that Scott Hahn has actually retrieved from the Church Fathers, that there seems to be an analogy between. Uh, the generation of the Son from the Father in the Trinity and the procession of the Holy Spirit from the Father and the Son. And so, these handful of church fathers said that as the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, so Eve comes forth from the side of Adam and the Father.
3: So, so Saint Methodius refers to the Holy Spirit as the rib of the Logos.
1: Exactly. It's like,
3: what? And I think what's important here is not delving more and more into the mystery of Trinitarian metaphysics. Mm -hmm. I think what's more important is just going back to the question, what's the significance of man and woman? Because if it's reducible just to biology, then we ought to be able to kind of, you know, not absolutize it. I mean, we respect nature to be sure. Likewise sociology, I think most people just just regard gender as a sociological construct. But what if bearing the image and likeness of God from the very beginning shows us that what it means to be male and female is traceable back to this theological mystery that is eternal. Then suddenly we've got to kind of go back and do our homework. So we're not simply arguing on the basis of natural law, although that's essential, but we're also pointing people to something of a mystery that Christ is inviting us to because it's the only thing for which we were made. And I I think at that point the church realizes what I remember hearing from my church history professor, that heresies and errors usually represent the unpaid bills of the church. Yeah. Mother church has the resources, yeah. but her children are too lazy just to write out the checks, <laughs> like, send them the bills. <laughs> you know? so, so,
1: I fully understand your, your caution about the Trinity, but I do want to come back to one point, which I do think is very important, particularly for us women, because it's, we're living in a, in a time where, or at least when I grew up, All I was told was I have to be as good as the man and as sportive, as athletic in everything. I had to be able to compete with the men and what was particular for me as a woman wasn't valorized. And so, even in the church, maybe that's because I'm from Germany, but look what's going on. Um, This cry for women priesthood. Mm -hmm. And if you understand what's your specific, how do you say it,
3: specificity.
1: Thank you, (laughs) Mm -hmm. as a woman, then you no longer try to replace men because you have enough to do to try and become a woman. Right? right. And if you are indispensable as a woman for this world to flourish, then you have to understand um, that your dignity and your job in creation is just as important and also in the order of grace as that of man. And so, I do find this insight of the Father so important that um, analogously to how the 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 mission of both the Son and the Spirit in their, in their uh, uh, mutual,
2: mutuality,
1: mutuality, in their common mission, they reveal the inner life of the Trinity. And then if we are created to be that reflection of the inner Trinitarian life, or let me put it in a rabbinic saying, Maybe maybe it makes it more tangible. The rabbis say, point out that the term for man ish is spelled with a yud, isha. So both, man and, man and female, ish and isha, both have one letter that the other doesn't have. Yeah. So ish has a yud, and isha has a he. And if you put the two together, you get ya, which is the short form for yav, right? Mm-hmm. But you need the two together to have an image of God. Right. So if there is something to this, that the male vocation is more christological, uh, representing the word, the order, the logos, yeah. the royal office, and the female vocation is more spirit-bearing or somehow analogous to what the spirit does in creation and in redemption then i to me as a woman this is a huge window into whom i have to contemplate to understand my own dignity and my role
3: mm-hmm.
1: yeah. vis-a-vis the male vocation yeah your first
3: I, chapter does a yeah. great job of synthesizing this and i want to just underscore that because if people listening or watching are wondering you know where can i learn more about this yeah that's there. I mean, and it, and it is in St. Maximilian Kolbe. Mm. And they, they scrutinize his writings. You know, you're not positing gender in God. That's the key. Right. You know, paragraph 470 yeah. in the Catechism says, there is no gender in God, no male yeah. or female. But on the other hand, there's fatherhood and there's sonship. And the Catechism says the perfection of motherhood is not absent in God either. And so this is where theologians need another five or eight centuries yeah. to really explore this because in the 20th century, St. Jose Maria refers to the Holy Spirit as the great unknown. Yeah. I mean, and, and so to understand the Blessed Virgin in relation to the Holy Spirit and to understand them both in relation to the church as bride and mother, we've got our work cut yeah. out for yeah. us. Yeah. But yeah. what we do have as humans, we share gender with animals and we reproduce, but they don't have persons. I mean animals are not made in the image likeness of God. They're not persons. We're persons who share gender with the animals, but who share this relational structure of communion with God. And until we recognize that, we're not going to understand why, what Regis was pointing out, why we're hungering for something. You know, it's like slaking somebody's thirst with salt water. You're going to cause them to burn up you know, Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. you've got to give them living water or else the cisterns that don't hold water Mm -hmm. are just going to drive us wild. Mm -hmm. Isn't it possible uh, at the level of nature to Mm -hmm. somehow shore up the
2: argument that you're making at the level of grace? Yeah. I mean, C.S. Lewis has, has a marvelously penetrating insight that in relation to God, all of reality is feminine.
1: Exactly, and that's we the Church receive. Fathers, the entire Middle Ages. So, so in, in a
2: way, you don't have to be as good as me. You're already better than I am <laughs> because you're, you're disposed to receive already. It's built into your being. Yeah. You know, you're maternal, you're virginal. I, I have to work to acquire uh, qualities of, of excellence, but you've
0: got it uh, by nature.
1: We have you a have more a more relationship yeah. to that,
0: yeah. But I thought you, to a point, is I thought you did beautifully in the beginning of, of talking about that, that it wasn't positing that God is male or female no. as such, But and you did that in such a sensitive way that I don't think anybody would read that and be t- put in back. I hope not, yeah. That. No, no, I thought you did it really really masterfully. But the and maybe we'll actually wait to the next section to talk a little bit more about the helper, because I think that was really beautiful and very, very insightful. But one of the things that you did as well is you talk about... I think it was on page 49, if I recall, about the modern feminism, and what does that actually look like? And, and you you claim that what is quote, unquote, seen as feminist is actually destructive to the woman and, and, and dismissive of the woman. So maybe just say, speak about that for a moment.
1: Oh, it just breaks my heart. Like Exactly like I said, I, we grew up to be dressed like men and everything else female was rejected. And so then you, you know, if I look at my peers who have who have given up motherhood for a worldly career, and I always think, when they die, no, no company, however big, right. is ever going to thank them in all eternity. Mm. Mm. Thank you, you gave me life. No, these companies won't exist anymore. They yeah. go down with the whore of Babylon in, yeah. right. if they're unlucky. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Th- this, th- women have been so cheated in their, in what's most proper and most unique about them. I mean, so many men nowadays would like to be able to be, wi- to be mothers, yeah. right? right. Um, Which is
0: probably not possible, but we'll deal with that. Exactly. uh, We have so much more to discuss, so please stay with us.
4: The Catechism of the Catholic Church thus affirms that woman was God's privileged medium of being present to man, that is, to be the locus of God's saving presence alongside man. In other words, she was created to be a living temple. A thirst for the spirit, Biblical Wisdom for Desert Times, by Dr. Nina Sophie Harriman.
3: We become members of a family that originates in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but that Holy Spirit overshadows the Blessed Virgin, so we become her children as well. People knew that when
0: the Messiah came, that this promise would call them as a covenant people to be what? A light to the nations. And everybody's invited to walk through that door of mercy. The only key we need is the one that each one of us has. But it is my sin that opens up the mercy of God. Amen? And welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We're discussing man and woman in Scripture. Uh, Now we're going to talk a little bit about... uh, Woman is helper that you talked about with Genesis, which I thought was just a beautiful image. Uh, yeah, let's just start there and then yeah. talk a little bit about Esther. Okay,
1: about so it. so going back to what we talked about in the first section, namely that in Genesis 218, it says woman was created to be man's helper. And the the popular interpretation of this ever since Luther, this would be a whole chapter in itself, mm-hmm. because this reduction to women in the kitchen is really owed to Luther. He's the one who wanted m- women there and nowhere else, yeah. reducing them to a completely misunderstood mm-hmm. image of Martha. Yeah. Anyway, um, if you, if we take seriously what's that, first of all, Scripture is inspired and not a single iota is where it is by coincidence. There must be a reason why the Scripture uses the term that is elsewhere exclusively used for God who comes as a helper to man. So insinuating, and the catechism says this, that God gave woman to man to represent him at his side, from from whom, meaning God, our help comes. So, the catechism endorses this in, I think, 1605. So, what does that mean? There is a hint in the language of how woman is created. Namely, it says that God takes Adam's rib and builds her which right. you don't really build a woman, right? Unless you get the symbolism that's going on there, namely that woman is a kind of a temple. And here again, we have this uh, analogy between nature and grace. Yes, even, even in our physical constructions, we are little uh, temples because we can house someone in our bodies for nine months. But of course, that symbolism then lends itself for the image of the temple in Jerusalem that was built to house God. So, you have the perfect prefiguration of the church already in the Temple of Jerusalem and even more so again of Mary. And I think everything we say about the way we read about, we, we, we understand Genesis, we, we uh, come to understand who this Eve was supposed to be. It's really only thanks to Christ taking away, away the veil in the New Testament and giving us Mary that gives us this deeper insight of who Eve was supposed to be.
3: You know, this natural analogy that is embedded in creation at the beginning is so profound. And it's being picked up by more and more scholars. The idea that Adam is not just the first man and not just our first father, but the high priest of humanity. That the cosmos is a temple in Genesis 1. The garden is the sanctuary in Genesis 2. And so, when they come together, it is like a high priest entering a temple, not some inanimate, object is made with dead stones, but that which God built as a helper, but as a divine helper as well. And so you can see how and why the temple is treated in a kind of bridal mystery, but also the city of Jerusalem, the holy city is a metropolis. It is a mother city. Exactly. That's not just a coincidence of etymology. That is widespread in the ancient Near East and perfected, I think, in some ways in in Hebrew revelation, in, exactly. in scripture. And, and there is an analogy too, that you don't have a building called a temple unless the spirit dwells within that. And so when Jesus is talking about um, uh, giving the disciples the paraclete, mm-hmm. as he does in the farewell mm-hmm. discourse, you know, I'm going to the father, but I will not leave you. And the Greek word is orphanus. I will not leave you orphans. We're going to send the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is going to cause them to be fruitful the agent of our rebirth, you know, the agent of our joy, but also the spirit of truth, the spirit of love. And it's going to constitute these men to be priests in the church, the new temple. And I I just think that, you know, it it seems like it's just a lexical exercise in word studies when in fact, it's an invitation for people in the middle of the world to be contemplatives, Mm -hmm. not just monks, not just nuns, But to realize everything that is happening to us in relationship to Jesus and the Holy Spirit, it isn't plan B. This is what was there in the beginning. It's the only thing for which God made the world.
1: What you recall to mind to me is Pope Benedict, then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger's book, Daughter Zion, his beautiful book on on Mariology. And he says very clearly at the end of the book that Mary is the archetype of woman, same as Christ is the archetype of what it means to be a man. And um, if we, so if we look at Mary as the new Eve and her relationship with the Holy Spirit and take that seriously because on account of her immaculate conception, of course, she was already the temple of the Holy Spirit from the moment she was conceived, of course, because she was pre-redeemed, but from the very first moment of her existence, she is, this Church that comes forth from the heart of Christ. Right, yeah. And so, underneath the cross, we see her together with Christ giving birth to this new humanity. That's why we call her the mother of the Church. We call her our mother. Behold but your but mother. Exactly. Yeah. And how is she able to do that? Because she is 100% in union with the Holy Spirit. And I even want to say the Holy Spirit and Mary are so one because Because he, because um, okay, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's it's hard to to express. Especially when you're huge theological conflicts, exactly. um, So I will just state it and then you can argue against it or for (laughs) it. Um, My my um, my deepest conviction is that Mary, being the beginning of the new creation, the Holy Spirit has chosen her as his vessel and his instrument, and there is no. Place where the Holy Spirit is, that Mary is not, right. because yeah. they're in, yeah. indivisible. I, yeah, I to yeah. share that same cardinal maternity.
2: Yeah, Cardinal yeah. Ratzinger, in the book that you cite, yeah. Daughter Zion, uh, outlines uh, something of her her Immaculate Conception. I, I think in a very uh, winsome way, yeah. uh, he suggests that the reason she is immaculately conceived is because there is simply no impediment, no barrier between Mary's being yeah. and God. Uh, yeah. In His will is my peace. Yes, as Dante would say. She embraces that. There, there's no struggle. There's no effort. Yes. No tension. No opposition. What God wants, I want, and I take delight in wanting it. So she and the Holy Spirit are like that. Exactly. They're, they're tight as a yeah. tick. Uh, I, and, I and think. And to the
1: point that I, I'm almost tempted to say she is the visibility of the Holy Spirit because yeah, we can't. The icon, exactly. Yes. Yes. Same as we see His work in the, in the first creation in nature, but in her we. He becomes, if you want to see the Holy Spirit, you have to look at Mary.
3: Right. And that's why St. Maximilian says that we have the created immaculate conception when the Holy Spirit overshadows her, she's able to conceive virginally. But then he goes on to call the Holy Spirit the uncreated immaculate right, conception. Yeah. yeah. So in a real way, Mary is the spouse of the Spirit, but that can't be implying that the Holy Spirit was a bachelor until right, 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 right. the Holy yeah. Until yeah. the blessed Virgin right, right, Mary right. was created immaculate, you know. so. Uh, you would have to say, as Colby does, that the closest friendship is between spouses and also the greatest crises, you know. But this relationship is even closer still. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, it's even closer than simply Mary being the spouse of the Holy Spirit. And that's the mystery that we have to explore. But I can't help but wonder if Satan doesn't already anticipate our our direction, mm-hmm. that he's, in a certain sense, a better theologian than any of us, you know, because mm-hmm. he can plot the trajectory of what mm-hmm. Revelation is leading is us to. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's at a Marian age like our own, where the Immaculate Conception is defined in 1854, the bodily Assumption in 1950, when we came close to clarifying at Vatican II, you know, and then the last chapter of Lumen Gentium you know, the the church is not just a corporation. The church is a corpus. I mean, Mm -hmm. the the body Mm -hmm. of Mary, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's the corpus Mm -hmm. Christi, but just as Adam awakens and says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. So likewise, at the foot of the cross, the new Adam
1: is seeing the birth of... Don't you find it striking that in Genesis 1, we hear that God created the heaven and the earth, that in itself already is masculine and feminine symbolism. And then he says, and the Spirit of God, in good translations, hovered over the waters. So, you, in Genesis 1, you have, you have from the outset, the, the, el- the two elements of the cr- Creator Spirit and the Word giving the order, right? So everything right. begins with the Word and the Spirit. Yeah. And you go to the New Testament, you have the incarnation of the Word and the Spirit coming to make Mary her temple, and now the two of them go about redeeming us.
3: Right, and I mean, theologians, haven't been doing this for that long, but they're drawing from scripture and the wellspring of the fathers and the devil is like, I see where this is going. <laughs> We've got to radical woman. feminism, yeah, get the you know, transgenderism, yeah, exactly. abortion, contraception. Yeah. Let's just crush and yeah. shatter yes. this beautiful archetype yes. before they go too
2: far. I mean, this may sound simplistic, but it, it strikes me that it's not unimportant that Mary is a woman no. uh, because, <laughs> yes. uh, I mean, Wordsworth, the poet, declares her our tainted natures solitary boast, which means we don't have that boast. Woman has the boast, which places her closer to the mystery, I I think. She really does have a leg up uh, over against men. That's why it's so disastrous to think that women ought to be just like us, but only more so to reduce everything to mere functionality. Right. Uh, I mean, Ratzinger, uh, in, in a sort of amusing anecdote, said what, what, how providential it was that the church is located in Rome and not Berlin. Because if the church were in Berlin, it would be bloody efficient, productive, and it would just consume everybody. <laughs> Nobody would ever take a nap. We don't want the church to be in Germany. I'm sorry worse to say that, joke. <laughs> but I think it's true. You, you need a certain relaxation, a certain ease and repose, like Mary, you know, having yes. lunch with Jesus, and Martha is so busy in the kitchen making hamburgers, and Mary is just sitting quietly at the feet of Christ. That's the contemplative yeah. uh, vocation, and she is the perfection of it. Yes, but it doesn't come to men easy, okay. but for women it's
0: natural. Now this is. Uh, Please forgive me, we could go on more and more about Mary, but I really would like to talk a moment or two about Esther, Esther. just yes. the way that you presented her. So yes. just for a moment or two, just a messianic figure, I mean, I was sharing with somebody that what, as a kid, Esther was fiddler on the roof, that's what I knew of Esther, right? But you just beautifully talk about her and the role that she has, so maybe a word or two about that. Yeah,
1: so Esther really is like the embodiment of what it means to be a new Eve in the good sense. Yeah. Because so you start off the story with uh, a, queen, a king who is the kind of the king of the universe, the Persian king. They govern, they govern the then-known world, and in the Jewish understanding of this novel, he is the symbol for God, even though he's an ambiguous figure. But they understand Esther ending up in this harem is really the Jewish people chosen to be in a marital relationship with the king of the universe, God himself. However, before we get there, he has a different wife Vashti Mm -hmm. and he calls her to show up at his banquet and Vashti refuses because for good reasons, uh, one might say the king, uh, she doesn't want to be paraded in front of this banquet, Mm -hmm. everybody drunk. And so, she gets dismissed as as a wife and Esther is chosen as the queen. And what's so brilliant about Esther is that she doesn't glorify her husband as if he didn't have any faults. She sees his weaknesses, but thanks to Mordecai, she also comes to understand that God put her into this position for such a time as this. Mm -hmm. And this alludes back to the book of Deuteronomy where God had said, there will be a time in which I will hide my face, ashtir in the Hebrew. And so, the the Jewish interpretation is that Esther is a pun on this moment when there will be utter disaster pending upon the people of God, God will seemingly be hiding his face, but then he comes to the rescue of his people in Esther, in whom he is now hiding his face. Mm -hmm. And we see exactly happening what I said about Eve's vocation. She comes to the rescue of the entire people of Israel at the border of life and death in using her feminine genius to, unmask Haman's strategy to destroy the Jews and winning the heart of her husband, interceding for her people. And not only the Jewish people are saved, the entire then known universe, the entire Persian Mm -hmm. empire now gets a king who's actually worthy of the title king. And she makes Ahasuerus, the king he's supposed to be.
3: This book comes alive it does, through that it really essay. It really was and beautiful. it doesn't just kind of hang together in terms of, you know, a historical narrative, a novella or whatever. It, it starts to pop off the page and become three dimensional. And you're like, I can meditate upon the own my, my own experiences of God's absence. And at the same time, you can also see how God orchestrates salvation history what's the term kioskuro, you know, that the shadows in a certain sense are essential to illuminating the brightness, you know, when it does come. That was my sense to reading this. It's like, there might've
0: been a plan with
3: this. (laughs) Just just might've been,
0: Uh, we'll be right back with more from Francis University Presents. So please stay with us.
4: Contrary to what proponents of modern gender ideology want us to believe, Most differences between men and women are not mere social constructs. They have their roots deep down in our biological sex and shape the way our psyche relates to the world. A Thirst for the Spirit, Biblical Wisdom for Desert Times by Dr. Nina Sophie Harriman.
5: Walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. You'll explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage in the Holy Land Poland, France, Austria, Italy, and more destinations. Find out more at franciscan.edu slash pilgrimages.
0: Welcome back and thank you for joining us. You're watching Franciscan University Presents, which we record here in the CommArt Studio at Franciscan University in Steubenville. Our students are taking care of all the cameras and the equipment, and our theology professors Dr. Regis Martin and Dr. Scott Hahn and I are speaking with Dr. Nina Harriman, author of A Thirst for the Spirit, about men and women in Scripture. Uh, I want to pick up where we ended at the last one. One of the things I thought was really, really beautiful was how Esther you stated, pointed out, or was able to see the weakness of the king, Um, but, but that was done in, in, in great charity and love, and not wanting to expose him, or but I think because of the fallen nature, man, male, we don't we don't want first off our weaknesses to be seen because we're supposed to have it all together. But there is a way that 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 can be done that actually is liberating, that is healing, that is restorative, and that I think is what yeah. I think one of the points you were and, trying and, to and express. And this again,
1: I think. Uh, so I'll flesh it out in a moment. But what I want to forefront load is you know how is it F. Dokimov who says. Um, It's really um, salvation depends on the heart of the women. At the end of the day, I mean, of course, it's already proven by the fact that Mary opens herself to the word of God. But it, we have, women have to be so conscious that a lot depends on us being women in the fullest sense. And so, what the book of Esther does beautifully is, um, uh, contraposing Vashti, the woman who feels offended and. Uh, this is not worthy of me, and she lo- just looks uh, in her own dignity. Or, uh, and she, she refuses to be the helper to her husband she's supposed to be, and she f- refuses thereby to be a good queen for her country.
3: Humiliating him.
1: Right? Yes, exactly, humiliating him. Esther, I'm sure, also saw his flaws, and the book shows that, but she never, ever exposes him publicly and not even in private. She knows. Also, that he's been duped by Haman, and the lot, like Christ on the cross, she knows he he does not know what he is doing, mm-hmm. and so she finds her wise ways to expose the enemy and and insinuate um, counsel in such a way that even the king thinks this is his own idea, yeah, yeah. yeah? Right. and that is very self-effacing on her part. Yeah. But you see how important and brilliant it is because the nation needs this man- but For the good. For the good. Not
0: for her desire, but for the good. No, and exactly. Important.
1: And, and, and he needs, the nation needs him to be the best he can be. And she realizes it's on her shoulder, so to say, through all her love. And here again, the Holy Spirit comes in because the Holy Spirit never condemns us, right? He is. He's just mercy and love. Of course, He's the one who convicts us of our sin, but He does so by showing us God's mercy. You know, you
2: could easily caricature that, I think, and say, oh yeah, she's clever, she's conniving, low animal cunning. This is what women do, they're always crafty. But in fact, this is part of the feminine genius to move by indirection, not a direct frontal assault uh, on this guy. Uh, Emily Dickinson, uh, the American poet, has a beautiful line, tell the truth always, but tell it slant, Mm -hmm. by indirection, by irony because that, that's the only way we can handle it. Uh, and this is part of the intuitive mastery, I, I think, of, of woman. She gets us to do what we would otherwise not dream of doing, yeah. but somehow she makes it uh, appealing.
1: And maybe she has the heart. You know how, how women are intuitively um, uh, drawn to being nurses and working in caring. Yeah. You know, you, I think woman has a capacity of seeing a womb a wound and feeling drawn in her entrails yeah. to help soothe that wound and so sh- seeing the wound in your in the man that God asks you to to serve uh, is it's it's a great capacity she has because thereby she can attend to the wound
3: yeah. well you know i think of the um, the distinction between the son and the spirit St. Irenaeus speaks of the Logos and the Sophia, because Sophia is so often linked to the spirit as wisdom, Logos as word, as truth, as logic. You know, men like to be right. Uh, So I hear. All right, you're you're right. (laughs) (laughs) But women know how to translate, (laughs) to say it at the right time, in the right way, you know, in the right circumstance, to get to our six kids, as opposed to dad just (laughs) setting them straight. And that kind of nurturing wisdom to me is embodied in the Blessed Virgin. It's eternally mysterious in the Holy Spirit. But this is what women saints are. And this is why we have doctors of the church because St. Catherine of Siena didn't just know what was needed. The right thing at the right time, yeah. the right way. She truly was right a person. woman
1: who made popes to become the popes mm-hmm. they were That's supposed exactly to. That's right. yeah. so yeah. exactly so much. But more so there's, this. I think, in, lest we speak too much about women. I think what's really important for us women is to fall in love with the masculine mm-hmm. uh, genius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so as to understand, to to uh, vener- venerate's the wrong term, right? Revere it, mm-hmm. yeah. honor it,
2: Honour?
1: and know what our mission is to help you men become yeah. the men that God to has created you awa- to be. To awaken right? that because yeah. I'm I'm in love with the feminine genius and now I'm not much of a woman. I mean, I shouldn't be looking at yeah. myself. Yeah. You
2: know, it it, it, it <laughs> seems to me that in, in terms of the natural ontology of mm-hmm. human beings, Women are closer to the mystery. I mean, Gabriel Marcel has a wonderful discussion about the difference between problems and mysteries. Men love problems. They traffic in problems. Let me solve this. You know, put a man on the moon. I can do this. Just give me enough money, uh, and I'll draw enough uh, expertise from the scientific community, and we'll do it within 10 years. And by George, we did. But life is not a problem to be solved. It's a mystery mm-hmm. that you have to endure. And what do women do when confronted by mystery? They say, let's have a cup of tea and sit down and we'll chat. And we get to the heart of the mystery instead of imposing right. a solution from
0: right.
3: the outside. Or like Mary,
1: they take it in, they contemplate they it, it. They, mem- they remember it. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, there's a there's a certain sense in which you yourself have been an instrument in God's hands. I mean, we've known each other for a few years, but as you shared with our students the other night, we were be, you, you opened a window so that we could see your life at around the mid-twenties when you had gone through law school, getting ready to pass the bar, maybe engagement, and then you felt called and went to a retreat and responded to the Holy Spirit. And then again in 1998, at that glorious gathering in Rome to celebrate Pentecost and the year of the Holy Spirit. You described to the students this powerful experience of the Holy Spirit that wasn't just momentary, but gradual and unfolding. And then, you know, I, I would never have prescribed or even, you know, uh, suggested you consider the path that the Holy Spirit took you on. You studied with the Jesuits at the Pontifical Biblical Institute, and were aware of the fact that, you know, greater scholars have lost their <laughs> faith by going there. And and you told us the story that won the hearts of our students. because. You know, you you passed and you got the licentiate in one of the hardest, no, not one of them, the single hardest program. And then you went and studied under the Dominicans in Jerusalem at L'École Biblique, which is the hardest doctoral program. And you took on the Song of Songs, which every scholar for the last (laughs) century and a half has said, ancient Near Eastern erotic love poetry canonized, you know, it's completely misrepresented, it's distorted and all of that. And then at the end of this, in the gentlest way, with the help of a, a few key Dominicans and Dr. Gary Anderson, you produce a 975 page dissertation that will probably redirect the course of interpretation for the Song of Songs for the next two or three hundred years. And I mean, I'm not the only one who says it. I don't, I, I wish you weren't here so that I could say <laughs> it freely. But I mean, this is what Father Anthony and Giambroni, who was had on the show. He was my key
1: advisor. Yeah,
3: yes. and I mean, he is not threatened by women. But he also is aware of the fact that he could not have done that study. You did and, and could. And you know, I just wish that we had like another show or, or probably would take five shows. Come and teach a class. Yes, Lord, hear our prayer. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, it, it, so it's not just a theoretical survey of figures like Esther. It really is a, a reactualization, you know, as some of the French refer to how the spirit actualizes the word in our own life experience. And of all of the books of the Bible, the Song of Songs, the Canticle of Canticles. On the one hand, yes, it is the holy of holies for the Hebrew Bible. But on the other hand, it's the it's the it's the most dangerous minefield to go wandering in. And yet, and at the let's same let time, her
0: let's let her speak to us a bit. Thank you.
3: <laughs> so
0: we we've got we've just presented it, and again, we don't. I wish we had more time, but maybe just a word or two. I mean, you've spent so much time studying some Psalms. What is yeah. it that? that was so to for you and...
1: Well, for me, really, me the, the, key, um, the key aspect was I wanted to, and I didn't set out to prove this. In the beginning, I just thought, somehow the Church Fathers must be um, justified in recognizing in this sublime love song, the expression of God's erotic love, if I'm allowed to say so, for His bride, the people of Israel, and then, of course, in the New Covenant, the church and also recognizing the Messiah in this symbolic figure of King Solomon. And I myself was intimidated by scholarship in the beginning thinking, okay, this, the scholars have proven this is just an ancient Near Eastern erotic love song, which according to them has nothing to do with God and Israel. But it struck me because every person who's never studied in the scholarly mm-hmm. environment goes, okay, he's a shepherd. That sounds like God in the rest of the Bible. And she's a vineyard. That sounds like Israel in the rest of the Bible. And it seemed to me, it kind of invites uh, this wise. theological reading then I, um, uh, but then I came to realize well it 's a nice way to go canonically say yes, it invites an extra reading, but we have to be extremely careful because if in its literal sense, it was intended to just describe the, the love between husband and wife, and I and probably more concretely describes the love between two young people. Um, then we can't just impose this religious reading right i do want to know what's in the literal sense because otherwise how can we stand firm and say this is actually this is how jesus loves you i mean it, you can't just claim that unless it's in the literal yeah, yeah, sense yeah. and i ran into for example there's a beautiful monastery in israel where they have contemplative sisters 45 sisters who live like cartusians and they uh, a professor came in from Hebrew University and gave them a retreat and they spent 10 days. He came in and said, I'm sorry, but this has nothing to do with God and Israel. This is just about two of our two related lovers. I don't know how they spent 10 <laughs> days in that monastery, these poor women. So, I just saw this need in the church, the abuse crisis, you know, the falling apart of, of, of uh, consecrated life everywhere. And I, it, I just thought, how can you live a consecrated life how can you give up marriage if it 's not for a love that right. is minimum as intimate and exactly exactly
2: if you wanted to uh, uh, find an example of how nature and grace ought to be integrated, uh, I think the Song of Songs is yes. the most exquisite illustration exactly. I think Bernard of Clairvaux calls it the masterpiece of of the holy Spirit and
1: that 's exactly the route that i that, which I took then because Saint Thomas says the metaphorically part of the literal sense is part of the literal sense. So, if something speaks in symbols doesn't mean this is part of the spiritual right sense. Right. No, the literal sense is expressed in symbols. And this is thanks to really the, the recuperation of symbolic analysis in the 20th century that we're able to be much more attentive to what happens when the scripture works with the symbols, which of course St. Thomas already used, but we kind of lost this thanks to Luther. <laughs> and um, so basically what I ended up doing was an historical critical analysis of what did this text mean when it was first published, so to say? Mm-hmm. And of course, there's many levels to it. But I really, at the end of my doctorate, I was and am fully convinced that whoever composed this uh, m- intended the literal sense to be theological and to be speaking about the love between the Messiah and his bride, the people of God, in the symbol of human marital love. So you have the perfect integration of God has created mm-hmm. r- love between a man and a woman in order to transcend at just as is our theology of marriage, right? But because we know what it means to be attracted to the other sex, we know what erotic love feels like, we get a glimpse of what the love that God has for us and and we have been created to ha- experience for Him.
0: Yeah, I think you treaded in this area so... So beautifully and tenderly, and it's it's a topic like you said, can we even say this right? there's yeah. something about it that's just so loaded and and the way you expressed it it was it was attainable, it resonated it you know as a celibate, it wasn't like, oh my gosh, what are you talking about it was I just thought it was really, really masterful praise god yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and the the part that I thought for us to bear in mind is that. It helped me understand more what it is to be loved by this guy. It's it's not just I, I love the word I like passion. Yeah. I just love the word passion. That it's not just this gentle, but there's something passionate and, mm. and engaging. And you just mm. experience. It makes it makes us understand the love of God quite differently than I had.
1: Yes. Yeah. That's why God gave us this book, right? And that, again, it is the devil's work to take it away from us.
2: I mean, it's not possible, uh, for instance, to understand the love poetry of John of the cross in the absence of the Song of Songs, that Jesus is really conducting a love affair.
1: Exactly, yes, yes. And if you take the Song of Songs out, then the Fathers, John, everybody lacks the basis, the rooting in the literal sense, but... I mean, everything is reducible
0: to moralism,
1: legalism. Exactly, exactly.
0: Great. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll have our final thoughts in
4: just a moment. The feminine genius, as the Bible conceives it, allows woman to perceive the weakness in man, but calls her to embrace that weakness in love and mercy, and by her genius, to raise man to the status his creator has destined him for. A thirst for the spirit, biblical wisdom for desert times, by Dr. Nina Sophie Harriman.
2: When you see the world through a Catholic lens, you see God's hand at work in human history. You see the true, the good, the beautiful. Franciscan University of Steubenville's Master of Arts in Catholic Studies is an online program that offers courses in literature, biology, art, theology, psychology, all taught from a distinctively Catholic perspective so you can see the world with
5: Catholic eyes. Find out more about the Masters in Catholic Studies. Go to franciscan.edu slash mcs.
4: Man needs the help, love, wisdom, courage, sensitivity, and faith of woman to assist him in order to become who he is meant to be, true king and ruler, according to God's heart. Similarly, of course, woman needs man's corresponding qualities to become who she is meant to be, a mother of life and not of death. A thirst for the Spirit, biblical wisdom for desert times by Dr. Nina Sophie Harriman.
0: Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've come to our final segment. So, Regis, your final thoughts.
2: Yeah. um, Gosh, thank you so much uh, for coming, and thank you for the book. It's rich, it's profound, and your conversation is so engaging. Uh, so winsome, so so eloquent, uh, so learned, uh, and in a wonderfully non-threatening way. Uh, It's beautiful. Uh, I'm I'm struck by a a line uh, from von Balthasar in which he sort of adroitly reverses uh, the famous dictum from St. Augustine. Augustine is celebrated for saying, "'The heart is restless until it finds rest in thee.'" Balthasar turns that on its head and says, Jesus is restless for us. He wants a relationship grounded in tenderness. He is a beggar, uh, you know, asking for your love, entreating for your love. And that image, I I think, is exactly what your book uh, is about. God hungers for us, His thirst for us, is even greater than our thirst for Him. So, how could we ever be disappointed? How could it ever fall short? You know, the horizon of His love is everything, inclusive of every possible passion we might have. Uh, And woman feels this, I think, in her bones, this sense of the mystery that I was made for love, for companionship with another. And it's possible in this world to experience that kind of intensity of attention, paid to me by the lover, this bride, this bridegroom who has come madly in pursuit of me. I mean, nothing is better than that. And you illustrate it so,
3: so beautifully. Thanks very much. Thank you. I want to echo that too. I, I want to just pivot for a moment to show how it hits me that um, you know scholars have been debating for um, decades as to how we'll integrate the tradition of spiritual exegesis with historical criticism, the literal sense, the historical truth and the theological meaning. And I think we can continue debating until the cows come home, you know, because it seems to be stuck in a theoretical realm of discussion. Whereas these seven chapters just translate all of the discussion, all of the debate into here, let's just show how it works. Beginning in Genesis, you know, with the helper and then ending in the apocalypse where you have the ravishing love of Christ for his bride. And then going through Esther, you know, one of my favorite chapters, as you know, is chapter 412, rules for life in the desert, which is fitting for the subtitle, biblical wisdom for desert times, because that's what we're going through. And that's what we need. We need biblical wisdom for desert times, but we don't need more debates about biblical hermeneutics. We need the translation in the practical application and, and scholars are going to read this and say, whoa, it can be done. Lay people are gonna read this and be completely unaware of the debate. And they don't need to be in tune, you know, with all of that discussion. But that's why I am so grateful for, you know, this particular book, a series of essays, some of which you presented here at our conferences mm-hmm. and that blessed women, but men equally so. And so just the last thing I would say is an expression Of gratitude to you for faithfully following the lead of the Spirit, but thanks be to God too for such a a wonderful series of studies.
1: Thank you so much. That is like the biggest compliment you could give me that I'm implementing a Catholic Scripture hermeneutics. Exactly. But I mean, my gratitude is really to you because you're the one who introduced me to the American world of this yeah. Narnia wonderland of Catholicism <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, by Narnia, inviting you me here <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, um, and inviting me to, yeah, to put this book together. So this is really your gift to me <laughs> for which I'm very, very grateful. Um, and uh, thank you for your closing remarks because sure. that resonates so deeply with, with my own um, thought and what I, what I often, I haven't found the metaphysical expression for this because as we know um, God is so transcendent and doesn't lack anything and yet the Scriptures use this language of Jesus desiring our love, right? Wow. And. Um, uh, what really struck me when I was working on the Song of Songs, particularly chapter four verses five, uh, 12 to five, one, there's a little section on that, but I don't mention it here here. I just speak about the the significance of what it might mean for a husband experiencing his wife. But um, if we take seriously, and uh, what the inspired word indicates here is that the lover who is the Messiah, therefore Christ, um, who comes into his garden, and the entire tradition, if you look at the iconography of the church, this garden, the closed garden, the Hortus conclusus has always been recognized as the Virgin Mary into whom the Logos descends. And then he says, I have eaten my honey. She, she says, come into your garden, my, my, my beloved, um, eat your honey and your, uh, drink your milk. And, and then he says, I've come into my garden, my beloved, my bride, I've drank my wine and my honey. And so you see him consuming something in her and taking His delight in her. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it in conjunction with that, what always strikes me is the sacred heart devotion. Mm-hmm. As a penance, we are asked to go not to flagellate ourselves and whatever fast for seven months, nine months. Instead for nine months in a row, we're supposed to go to confession and receive communion. Like this <laughs> is our penance receiving God in our body. <laughs> and. And here, for me, this is where this happens. The Lord so desires to unite Himself to us that He expresses it in in this human language. I'm desiring to, for me, coming to you is like eating milk and honey and getting drunk on wine, Mm -hmm. you know, a human Mm -hmm. analogy, right? But there is, He's a human being. Mm -hmm. Um, in In His sacred heart, which symbolizes humanity, there is, in His entire humanity, this desire to become one with us. And that is so deeply expressed in the union of these two lovers.
0: Amen. Thank you so much. Um, uh, this is available if you'd like to learn more about our topic. That We have a free handout, a section by A Thirst for the Spirit. The short, short section is yours if you simply go uh, online to faithandreason.com slash presents or by calling the number that we'll provide momentarily. Um, there were so many different thoughts that, that went through my mind as, as I was reading the book. But just as, as we're kind of closing up, there's the text in Romans 8 that the scripture says um, the spirit comes to us in our weakness. And I just find myself reflecting on that also in the light of your your connection of, of the spirit and the feminine and in the connection that exists between those. And then also the feminine of Esther being able to point out the weakness and that not being intimidating. And that's that's been my experience uh, with the Spirit of Jesus coming upon me and that shows me some weaknesses that if you or you or you pointed it out, it's like I'd be frustrated and upset, but but the Lord is able to do that and the Spirit's able to do that in such tenderness and in such kindness that, that I'm not frustrated, I'm not intimidated. In fact, there's something about that that spurs me on. That's also been the same with some of the significant women that I've had uh, a part of my life. I think I'm a better priest because women who were able to, I was able to have an honest uh, relationship with and. And they were able to, sometimes the woman was my mother, honestly, and sometimes it was just women that I've worked with. They were able to, uh, in a way that I wouldn't have accepted from one of you, that, that spurs me on, that, that helps form me, that helps me to be a better man, that helps me a better priest, because they can point out weakness, and I'm not intimidated, I'm not frustrated, I'm not defensive. Uh, We live in a world that wants to have men and women constantly fighting against and pitting against one another. But what you present is, in fact, that is the antithesis of what it's supposed to be, is that we were created for one another, ultimately, I think, to get each other to help to heaven and be a part of that. So thank you so much for this. Uh, It was a great blessing. Uh, We would love to have you come back to the campus anytime.
1: Thank you so much for having me here. It's a huge honor.
0: So we just pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, we ask your Holy Spirit to be present we thank you for the gift that is uh, man and woman, that help us see you more clearly and experience and encounter you more clearly. Uh, Jesus, you thirst for us, and if you have placed in our heart a thirst for you, may we experience that communion you so desire. May the Lord pour his blessings upon you, the
5: Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen, God bless you. Download a free handout on today's topic at faithandreason.com slash presents. You can also watch past episodes of Franciscan University Presents or request the handout by emailing us at presents at franciscan.edu. Or reach us by phone for today's handout by calling 800-783-6447. That's 800-783-6447.